0: You're listening to Captured and Celluloid. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And on this episode, we are going to dive deep into the films of French New Wave filmmaker Jacques Demy. And to do so, we have a very special guest joining us. Andrew, I think it's only right if you tell our dear listeners who's joining us on Captured and Celluloid today.
1: It's someone that's been referenced on this podcast by me before as my North Carolina equivalent to you in terms of the person that's always pushing me to make sure I see all the movies that I need to see. It's someone that was birthed onto this mortal coil a mere 22 months after I was. It's going to be my, my sweet baby brother, Jordan Snyder. Jordan, thanks for joining us today.
2: Has Andrew stopped talking and have I begun talking? Are we the same person? That's my biggest fear, is that people will have trouble distinguishing our voices.
0: I think there's just enough of a difference. I'll be honest, that was my biggest fear, was that I wasn't going to know who I was talking to, that nobody else would know who was talking. But I think there's just enough there. I, I, We'll see. We'll see as it goes along. Maybe there's plenty of potential for us to get mixed up, but I think we'll be okay.
2: Andrew can go like three degrees twangier today.
0: I don't think that's a problem for Andrew. I I mean, I I I don't know if we need three degrees to twang here. I don't know what that comes out like, but we'll see what happens. Jordan, we asked you to come on. We thought it only made sense. Um, Certainly, as Andrew just put it, you are equivalent to me in terms of pushing Andrew to watch things. Maybe he he listens sometimes, maybe other times he doesn't. Right. Uh, But this, on the whole, seems to be an exercise almost in self-improvement. He's getting better at watching things, and that seems like a good thing. So when we asked you to come on, we left it up to you to choose the topic for this particular episode. So you suggested the films of Jacques Demy. What was it about Demy's films, or why did you decide this was this was the right topic for us to discuss?
2: Well, um, as Andrea has no doubt mentioned on the show before, one of our shared films that we love and that I've seen upwards of 25 times now is La La Land and I just was consumed every bit of content whether it was interviews behind the scenes that I could regarding that movie and Damien Chazelle would always talk about his biggest influence being Jacques Demy and two films specifically The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rochefort. So I hadn't seen them and had been meaning to watch them since I first learned about them in 2016 And it's just one of the things I kept putting off and putting off. And I think this gave me the motivation that I needed to finally sit down and watch them and see where uh, Chazelle's inspiration came from.
0: Okay, so I wasn't aware of that. So some of this was discovery for you as well as Andrew. You weren't necessarily kind of prompting Andrew. Maybe had you seen Umbrella Sherbrooke before, but this is for... We're going to talk about three films specifically, two you've mentioned, the other being Lola. Was there... Any of those that you hadn't seen at all before this?
2: All of these were fresh, yes. Let me cut in here, because I remember
1: it specifically. You had just started your Demi descent, as it were, as Adam and I were discussing podcast ideas, and then since you had already started that, and I knew you were going to keep diving deeper, I thought, what a better time than to for all of us to explore this together, since Adam was already very familiar with his works. And then especially it would give me the impetus to to actually see something uh, after you had told me you were doing something instead of just putting it off for six months. So you had already started your journey, and this, I think, just pushed you all the way down the the rabbit hole, if that makes sense.
2: It was the perfect confluence of events. Everything just was coming together at the right time. It was really fate, which I think uh, maybe Demi would appreciate that.
0: I'm sure he would. I think before we get into the films, that we maybe more generally discuss what did Jacques Demi film Looks like what it is, because there are certainly, you know, distinct characteristics for all the many ways his movies uh, differ. There's certainly some standout similarities that we'll, we'll be discussing. But before we do that, it's probably worthwhile to just give a bit of a prime or a bit of an introduction to who he is uh, for anyone listening who has never heard of him before, isn't familiar with his movies, and I'm aware that that could be quite a lot of people. I mean, if we are having a an episode like this where discovering elements of Demi is new for for both of you and I mean not quite for me in this case but it's not that long ago that it would have been um that means there's a lot of even kind of hardcore cinephiles and real film fans who may not have been able to see his work for various reasons so filmmakers who I guess people may be more familiar with whether they've seen their movies or not such as Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Francois Truffaut um they're most commonly associated with being kind of the forefathers of the French New Wave movement or the Nouvelle Vague. Jacques Demy was really the person who was right there with them and essentially got his start after Jean-Luc Godard made Breathless when Godard was asked, "Do you know anyone else who can make movies like this? Any friends who could direct a movie on a really low budget something that will look like this, something that will feel like this?" Godard recommended Jacques Demy. And from there, Lola was made. There's kind of a... The French New Wave is a really kind of large and complex movement that I will touch on a little bit more. I'll be interested to hear both of your awareness or familiarity with it or any kind of tidbits of knowledge you might have. But there are these figures such as Godard and Truffaut who tend to soak up a lot of the the critical attention, the, the academic writing, and at the time, the commercial success as well, where Demi is one who, for all of his kind of significance in kickstarting the movement, and even for a lot of the really kind of boldly original films he made, kind of fell to the background um, for for large spells of time, in part to do with the availability of his films, in part to do with the fact that they just weren't as obviously commercial as some of his peers, not to say godard is the most commercial filmmaker in the world by any means Um, but as a result jack to me is most commonly associated with the the left bank element of the french new wave movement which is as the name would suggest generally seems to lean kind of a little bit more left politically but would adhere to a lot of the principles of new wave cinema and the kind of look that i think we'll we'll talk about when we get into lola but at the same time a little bit more experimental, a little bit more open to taking risks. And that's where the kind of visual flourishes that became signatures for Jacques Demy come into play. Other filmmakers who were kind of core part of that element of the new wave were people such as Alain Rene, most famous probably for last year at Marienbad, or Chris Marker, mostly famous for his documentaries, and Agnes Varda, who would go on to be Jacques Demy's wife. And Varda is... Varda is a personal favorite, probably one of my all time favorite filmmakers and someone that I probably know more about than many other directors. And really, that was my way into to me when I, when I started to really kind of analyze Varda's films. And she has three films, really, two documentaries and one uh, one quasi fiction, quasi documentary movie that are about her husband that I really started to pay attention to him. So maybe that's something we can do down the line and take a closer look at at a later date. But just to kind of, that's very brief primer of what how Jack Demi came into the world of cinema. I mean, beyond that, he, he did have pretty good successes. we are going to touch on with Umbrella Sherberg and with young girls of Rochefort. And that did eventually lead to him getting an opportunity to make a film for Columbia pictures in the U S model shop. And, I think he's an interesting director in terms of how his vision of the movies was less tied up with maybe formal innovation like some of his peers were and just more kind of enraptured with the kind of emotions and feelings that seem to speak to him from classic Hollywood musicals. And even when his films aren't specifically musicals, um, that feeling is there throughout he manages to achieve something pretty interesting and pretty specific to him too so just before we move on from that i know andrew you said this is kind of an introduction to the new way for you jordan have you on your many different kind of explorations or deep dives or kind of jumping in one film here or there is there any other new way filmmakers that you've discovered or films that you've come across that you've really liked
2: it's still mostly a blind spot for me but like i've seen breathless and Um, actually the only Agnes Varda film I've seen is one sings and the other doesn't, which I don't Mm. know if that's one of her, one that she's most known for and probably not the best place to start with her as, as I've found. But overall, I think there's still, I'm after taking this dive with the me, I'm, I'm more interested in exploring, uh, more filmmakers because I definitely have enjoyed his films more than, uh like breathless for instance i feel like there's mm. just a a more personal touch to them it's not not quite as uh he's definitely in touch with his feelings i will
0: say yeah i, I think the only other new way filmmaker the of the most notable core i guess um particularly not in the left bank movement that i would say that applies for is probably true where there is just this kind of, like, the 400 Blows is a deeply personal movie and is kind of clear emotional resonance in a way that a lot of the Mies films would have. But there is just still something. I guess it is just the way he fell for the Hollywood spirit of movies that does feel more readily accessible. And I, I think even people who are listening to us and haven't watched the Mies films and decide after this to go and check them out or haven't really watched any new wave, I, I don't think, like aside from the subtitles, which has been something that's caught up a few weeks in a row now, Andrew has his favorite Bang Jun ho quote that he usually would break out at this time. <laughs> but, you know, once you do get past that barrier, I, I think there are some other things. Certainly, we'll probably get to Umbrellas of Sherberg and some things that may be jarring for some viewers. But there is a kind of, a, certainly a visual style and a visual language that is very much recognizable from anyone who's watched classic musicals really from I guess 40s onwards I mean West Side Story in particular we'll probably talk about later looks like one of these films but there is something about the me that I think is very accessible uh, for film fans from around the world it doesn't have to be that you're kind of deeply invested in the new wave so with that I want to kind of transition over to the world within his movies I have seen these films I've, I've seen all of them multiple times now. In re-watching for this, I've seen them multiple times. So I have a very clear sense of this, but I'm curious for both of you. So, If I was to say to you, what's your impression of the world that Jacques Demy creates in his films? What comes to mind, or what are the key features that stand out to you? We'll start with you, Andrew.
1: For me, it's a world that's visually rich with longing shots of of various settings and, and the characters. And it's also a world field filled with people that are endlessly wanting, whether that's more in terms of professional fulfillment or in many cases love. So that's, that's a through line for, for all three of the movies we're going to talk about today. And jumping off from that general point of discussion on French new wave, I think it is that perfect introductory point into this, this type of filmmaking, because it is uh, pretty accessible to me, honestly, because the 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 drama and the the visual nature of these films are easily watchable. but but that's the world that he really likes to create. and and there's also a, a lot of cleverness in the world, especially when it comes to the fates of characters and misconnections and that sort of thing that we'll get into later.
2: Uh, yeah, I think one of the probably the biggest through line, at least that's connected for me so far, is that all of the films seem to have a love story that is not so traditional. It doesn't end up in the traditional way where it seems doomed from the beginning and that seems to be a fascination with his and it's also a fascination of mine. So I think that's also why I have gravitated um, to these films. Not that I... I wouldn't say that I loved any of the Demi films that I've seen so far, um, but I find them just incredibly watchable and I feel like that can usually be seen as pejorative but it's big emotions expressed in big ways, and sometimes that's a little too melodramatic for me, um, and I think melodrama is definitely something that sticks in his, uh, or is definitely in his wheelhouse. Um, but yeah, again, the, for his musicals, big, bright, vibrant colors, and then just the, the love story gone awry.
1: The emotional aspect um, of his films are really interesting to me because they're it's it's cynical and hopeful all at the same time. These characters are going into these situations with the best intentions, knowing a, a little part of them knows in each situation that the odds are stacked against them. So it's uh it's almost I didn't want to say I didn't want to say it was like a soap opera because that that seems derisive, but I mean it in the best way. It's like the the best uh the best love story drama uh tied into a musical in two of these cases and uh i I really was drawn to the the emotional pull of these films when something's that dramatic and that self-serious in some of the cases it could come across as annoying or almost uh pretentious but the worlds he builds feel real despite the surrealness going on around them
2: yeah, I think it lacks any pretension whatsoever. Because I, I would say there there are some readings and shots that definitely verge on soap opera territory. I'm thinking specifically um, when a, a notable character dies in, in Cher- Cherbourg. Um, there's a scene that just it's almost cringeworthy to watch, I think, but. Um, if if you know what I'm referring to without spoiling anything,
0: yeah, but. I I know I know what you're referring to. I'm I'm quite interested in this. I mean, the first thing I think, as both of you rightly, you both have mentioned the idea of melodrama and have both also been kind of, I guess, cognizant of not wanting to make that sound like something pejorative. And it's it is kind of, I guess, it is the soap opera effect. We hear melodrama and we think soap opera. But there have been, I mean, countless great great movie directors and great movies that do veer into melodrama i mean people who fully reside in that territory you've got like douglas sirk or more recently pedro amadova but even i mean someone like david lynch frequently loves to veer into to melodrama so i i think that's okay in its own right there there is certainly elements of melodrama in the Mies film but to me it wouldn't be the thing that jumps out to me i i do think the effect is more melodramatic than the content if that makes sense like for example, in in Cherbourg, I mean, everything is completely overdramatic and melodramatic because it's an opera. It's not even a musical. It is an opera. Every line of dialogue is sung from start to finish. So it, it's quite natural for it to come across as as really melodramatic, where the tropes that we'd associate with melodrama, to me, don't really have a place in his films. Um, maybe he was very, very aware of that. And he brings a lot of his stories and his characters to the points where we feel like we know what's next. We feel like it's playing to those kind of generic norms of what a melodrama is. But he just kind (laughs) of he has this kind of nasty melancholic streak that just, you know, just when you think, oh, he's going one way and this is the movie it is he goes in a completely different direction. And melancholy is really, I mean, that's the one word that would come to mind for me about his films. I mean, he sets up these great romantic situations and romance is almost always central to his stories, but it's a kind of naive romance. It's often like really young people or even some of the older characters in his films harking back to kind of young love and even kind of, the kind of romances that didn't fully uh, materialize at a young age and, and kind of remembering them fondly and looking for them to be rekindled. there There is something very knowing about that where it's kind of, he plays for me with the naivety of, of that kind of romance and then takes a really hard kind of turn into something which is almost always really sad. Like, I, I don't know if there if I've seen a film that doesn't really finish in a place that's pretty grim. I mean, you can pick moments for each character and say, sure, that's, that seems like things have worked out okay for them, but there's always someone who's not quite coming off very well. And I, I don't know. I think it's an interesting dynamic he creates among his characters and with his stories.
1: Yeah. I think that that particular theme is most effective in Lola. Um, which is, which is, I think, was his first feature film, if if I'm if I'm correct. The our protagonist there, uh, Roland Cassard, who's had a chance encounter with uh, someone he knew from his teenage years, a a woman named Cecile, who now is a dancer that goes by the name Lola. He he, he runs into her on a chance encounter, and they try to start to rekindle a friendship more than a romance, and. From their initial conversations, interactions, you can tell that someone else from her past is is constantly on her mind. And that there's nothing he can do to, to work his way into her life because she's she's done with loving someone unless it's this person from her past, the father of her child. And despite that, he relentlessly thinks that this is the person he now loves. This is the person that's going to make his listless life worth living and yet he he can't seem to let go of the the fantasy of her and he doesn't realize that he's doomed until the very end and i think whereas in shorberg there's almost a twinge of hopefulness at the end this one is almost despair for all parties involved because even though there is one aspect of that that could be considered a happy ending I, I take a more <laughs> cynical view of everything that's happening in that ending. I don't know if you agree.
0: I, I certainly agree because I guess the the one thing even we'll mention at this point as we're getting into his movies is Jacques DeVee was the original Kevin Feige. <laughs> you know. Before there was the Marvel cinematic universe, there was the Jack to Me extended universe. And originally when he started making movies, it was an idea that he eventually kind of disowned and moved away from. But he had this it's taught that he would like all of his movies to tie together and to have characters from one movie appear in the other. So that you have this wider universe. And there is certainly, I mean, there's a direct true line from Lola to the umbrellas of Sherberg, as we'll touch on. Um, there is a reference in Young Girls a Rush for, I we might talk about when we get to that movie. Did either of you pick up on that I'm just curious it's a much more subtle one and about a much more niche character from one of those two films uh the
2: uh the the diamond guy the jeweler
0: in Young Girls a Rush for, yeah
2: do they reference they reference the the barber who was doing the like diamond smuggling ring I, I think.
0: Yeah, that gets a, that gets a mention and there's it's also also Cecile's mother, I believe is referenced. Correct. M- Madame Desnonay. Right. Um is referenced by name. Sorry, baby um, Cecile, not Lola. <laughs> yes. Correct. So it's it's kind of funny how he plays with this and the reason I br- brought that up at that point is you mentioned kind of being able to look at the the ending of Lola is something a lot more cynical. We actually, we know that for a fact because in his movie, Model Shop, we again pick up with that character. And I I feel, again, we see kind of Demi's worldview of what would happen to someone like that. How would um, the progression of events in Lola affect that person? And what does that all amount to? So not only does he kind of give us these glimpses, there are, there are actual instances where, we get to see him map out beyond in the way that we normally would never. And even when you and I, Andrew, have talked about movies a lot, we often talk, but we don't like to speculate about what goes on beyond kind of the end credits and what happens next. Well, the me, kind of takes it right there. And when he does pick up with characters, it's often in a way where it's like, just in case you missed it the first time, um, I'm going to hammer home that, you know, this person's life isn't going to plan. There, there's just kind of something interesting with the way he plays with that. Um, to give just a general kind of overview of some, some details before we get into some more uh, specifics on Lola, it was his feature debut. You're, you're right in saying that. He notably collaborated with Raoul Coutard, who was a legendary cinematographer, one of the most important cinematographers of the new wave, uh, most frequently collaborated with Jean-Luc Godard on a lot of his films. This was his one and only collaboration, I believe, with Demi. Um, it was also the first collaboration that Demi had with composer Michelle Legrand, who we will talk about a lot more as we move on through the other two movies. And this is the film, as I mentioned at the beginning, I mean, he got to make this movie because Breathless was such a big success, and they were just looking for more movies like this. And as a result, this is not what we would come to know Demi's style as, I mean, I think you find those flourishes there. You can certainly recognize them after you've watched the other films. You can see the, the same kind of, certainly thematically the same issues at play, but first it's shot in black and white um, for budgetary reasons as much as anything, but it does take on this kind of grounded slightly grimier sort of verite documentary style look that is kind of fundamental to the new wave as a movement and yet Demi would completely move away from and go for something much more fantastical as he moved on throughout his career. Um, Lola as well. I mean, kind of speaking to Demi as a filmmaker and what he was interested in, it's dedicated to Max Ophels, I believe, and was na- the characters all named after characters from uh, Der Blaue Engel, which is a Joseph von Sternberg film. So like, this is someone who's very much, Cine literate, maybe not as obsessed as someone like Godard Truffaut and kind of working all that into his movies, but that plays a key part in it. As for the movie itself, your impressions of Lola, Jordan?
2: Lola is was actually surprisingly my favourite of the three, uh, which I definitely did not expect going in because I knew nothing about Lola and actually had, at least had a frame of reference for the other two movies and they were Damon Chazelle's favourite movies of all time, some of them. So, I think it was the fact that, and uh, Demid has described this movie as a musical without music, uh, which I'm curious to to hear what you guys think he might mean by that. But maybe I feel like this was the least melodramatic of of the three, despite the fact that it has some of those elements. Um, And I think the more grounded nature of it compared to the other films, which. I feel like this whole podcast is going to sound like that I'm dumping on Cherbourg and um, Rochefort. Um, And and a little bit I will be. um, Because those two are ones where I enjoy the feelings I have after the fact more than I enjoy watching the films themselves. And Lola I was just immediately enjoying it right away. I think um, that Central relationship in the film has has a lot to do with that, and I don't know. What tell me what what do you guys think about that whole musical without music idea?
1: That's really tough for me to put my finger on um, why he would say that. Um, I mean, the movie is is well paced and kind of flows in the way that I think a musical would, just because every song and number has to be tight down to the second, just because of of the nature of that type of movie. Uh so that that's that's the only thing that I could think of there uh, narratively Adam is there anything that you see that kind of brings that home and makes sense to you? I
0: I think what he means by that is it's maybe even kind of more on the surface than we could probably look for, which is I mean, he wanted it to be a musical. He just couldn't afford to make it a musical. Um, he didn't really have the tools at his disposal at that point, so it couldn't be. And um, I think when you look at this story, and certainly when you compare it to the other two, I mean, certainly there's a case he made for Young Girls of Rush for naturally being a musical, and um, with some of the story elements. But I mean, this is set largely in a cabaret. I mean, maybe thirty forty percent of the movie, and it's set around the performer for for a large chunk of the film too. So very obvious elements of this film would kind of slot seamlessly into the structure of what a movie musical would be, and certainly would feel at home with that, and it, we do get one song, effectively, in the film, um, which interestingly was actually written by Agnes Varda, I don't know if, did either of you come across that or know that, but Lola's kind of signature song uh, was actually written by Agnes Varda.
3: Celle là, celle qui rit à tout propos, celle qui dit l'amour c'est beau, celle qui plaît sans plaisanter, reçoit sans les dédommager, les hommages, des hommages et les bravo des braves gars. Les hurrales viens avec moi. Celle qui rit de tout cela, qui veut plaire sans tenir là. C'est moi, c'est Lola.
0: But uh, for me, I think that's that's really what he's saying with that. Uh, I think it, it, it does come down to it's a musical without being a musical for him because I mean. I think that's how he envisioned it. That seems to be how he really sees his films. I mean, he later in his career with something like when Deville, de Ville, he takes much darker subject matter than this film and makes it into a musical, kind of highlighting that there may not be anything that Jack DeBee doesn't see as possibly being a musical. So I, I think there's an element to that. I mean, it, it doesn't come true in terms of style doesn't come true in terms of what he's doing with the camera. This is not a film where the camera is dancing around the characters, dancing around the screen, where you'd often otherwise come to that kind of of description, but I think for me, it seems to be something that's quite, kind of possibly quite surface level and just speaks to his desire of what he would have made this film. I'm glad that this isn't that, and I love Umbrella of and I appreciate Young Girls of Russia more every time, so don't feel bad Jordan because we're going to have a counter <laughs> we're going to be on, on the opposite ends of the scale here but I am glad that there is this kind of version of the me out there too this kind of snippet of him and this is the, the introduction to his career like I guess for character and for plot reasons I mentioned to you Andrew before you started watching the films for this I said make sure you, you watch them chronologically um, that was mostly for the character of Roland Cassar who obviously is in this film and then appears in the Umbrella of Sherberg. I thought you might naturally want to watch them the other way around. And it is probably better to actually see his progression through the two movies this way. But I also think there is something about the more gentle introduction to the me that comes true. in Lola, did you find that Andrew?
1: I think I did. And specifically with Cassard, who's played by Mark Michel, I'm going to assume it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is this is an introduction to a specific kind of demi-protagonist, uh, which is a person who has a lot of ambition in one particular aspect of their life, and in his case, that manifests itself in f- finding the love of his life and that sort of thing. And I wanted to say that even though Damien Chazelle has referenced Schorberg and Rochefort being more of direct influences on... um. La, la land i think that young cassard is very similar to the character sebastian just in a different way sebastian's ambition manifests itself in i want to be i want to be the person that <laughs> reinvents jazz or makes jazz accessible to modern audiences or brings young people back to jazz whereas cassard and lola is set on on finding love and finding something that ex- that ex- inspires him so introduces us to a type of protagonist that we see pop up in in shorberg as well later um this time it's just might uh i would say that the the geek character is more along those lines than cassard as cassard has moved through his life and (laughs) experienced some things and gotten a little more realistic about the world and uh, a little more secure in himself yeah
0: i can i can see that i mean i will we'll get to we'll get to Lala and La Land and we'll probably, it's just more obvious to talk about it with the other two films. I certainly think there's the spirit of Lola is in La La Land, um, but there are very obvious, I mean, either whether it's the structure of the story or if it's literal shots that Chazelle has basically lifted from the other two films and kind of uh, repurposed in his own fashion for what fits La, La Land. And I mean, it works wonderfully well in that movie but there is there is a spirit it's i i really think this is the movie i mean to me is talked about frequently as one of the most kind of overlooked and underappreciated masters of world cinema and to me this is one that's kind of completely ignored because even now when we've reached a point where say criterion um not only are his movies available on the criterion channel but they've put together a box set a lot of the discussion around that has even it's kind of spun it to a place where something like Model Shop, which has recently got a uh, home video release and remaster here, but I don't believe is available in the US, and I know Criterion don't have it through any platform. Where that's now being put forward as kind of his his most overlooked and underdiscussed work. For me, it's it's Lola because I mean I just think he's doing something so simple but also so kind of emblematic of what he goes on to become as a director in a much noisier way over his next two movies i'll agree with that in that
1: for me this went love love really like in in terms of uh his movies how i felt about them uh shorberg is obviously my favorite just because of what i enjoy you know i'm a person whose favorite movie is of all time is quite possibly la la land i like musicals that's something that really speaks to me but i could hear the argument that lola is his best film i think he accomplishes uh a lot in a very subtle way like you were saying in particular i mean just absolutely nailing that bittersweet ending that we talked about before and like almost setting up viewers to realize what he's going to become as a filmmaker and what he really cares about uh getting across to
0: to viewers i mean one of the key things i want to mention here because i don't know how much we'll talk about it again over the other two movies and i just don't think it's something that's associated with him but i think lola sets out this particular technique that he uses throughout his career that he uses in a remarkably effective way And that just so many filmmakers wouldn't come close to executing like he does. And that's the way he writes his stories. The writing for Lola is phenomenal in terms of how the story kind of knits together. It is a a real common feature of the Maze movies that you've got this, I guess what I could only call kind of loose plotting, where while you're watching the film, this is more apparent in some than others. I think Young Girls of Rochford is the one where we'll maybe talk about this most again. And I I have the same relationship to the three movies we're talking about as you just described, Andrew, and I think part of that is the plot just feels really kind of baggy in Young Girls of Rochford until it isn't and then maybe it still doesn't come together just quite as well as you'd like. But in Lola, I mean, you've got this perfect symmetry from literally first shot to last shot. I mean, the, the film is bookended by A character like we're not we're not really diving into plot on any of these to a crazy extent, probably umbrella Sherbrooke. So I don't want to give spoilers in case anyone hasn't watched the movies and will be inspired to having listened to us. But there is a character who when we first meet them in Lola, you go, "Okay, this is who the film is about until it's not. And like, it's someone that you could easily forget about until we see them again at the end of the movie. And we have that kind of situation mirrored with multiple characters throughout where you know, everyone's waiting for kind of the shoe to drop or for for their person to show up, I mean, effectively, which is the real kind of feature of Demi's work. And that could just become so messy. You think of these filmmakers, think of someone like Robert Altman, who specializes in these kind of multi-narratives and kind of knitting everything together. Um, Altman was the master of it, but so many others have tried and failed and made some incredibly kind of cheesy movies. Crash being an obvious example that comes to mind, Paul Haggis's Crash. Like the ability to kind of bring all of these treads together and have these characters that aren't, it's not necessarily apparent, you know, how central are these to this character? And particularly with this movie, I mean, it's called Lola. Like, do I, do you feel like this is really her story throughout or that she is even the kind of the guiding light of the movie?
2: If it's not her story, I think it's, it's the person that everyone is uh, surrounding basically. Mm they're all caught in the orbit of lola i think
0: yeah that that's probably the best way of putting it like she, she is the the unifying factor although there are other elements that are kind of tangentially related to her or other motivations even for kind of side characters like Demi's films to me there's not just your kind of one two three four primary characters and it's about their goals and motivations there's often these kind of strange moments as they're happening where characters who are just really off to the side, then come to the fore, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess that does matter, but I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe you're the person to speak to this, Jordan, because I, I'm certainly kind of an avowed lover of the Mies films, and I'm very much kind of, I'm won over on all of these to an extent that, you you've said it yourself, you like them, but you wouldn't say you love any of them. Does the way he knots his stories together is that something that comes across to you in the way I'm describing as something quite seamless or is there an element of it that even though you might go, yeah, okay, that's impressive. It's also a little bit twee at times.
2: I think the thing that I always get hung up on are like really specific details and I can, I can explain what I mean, but I think as far as the way his stories go and the way he structures them and how you have, your quote-unquote main characters, and then we have these tangential characters who, in this film, their lives sort of mirror those of our main characters in a way, and everything almost seems related. I liked all of that. Um, So... Are, are we not spoiling Lola?
0: I mean, we can we can put up a spoiler uh, <laughs> warning now. I'll put it in the notes so we can, we can talk openly about it and people can come back in a couple of minutes who want to actually go and watch it for themselves.
2: So just for example, the, the weird things that I get hung up on are like the detail of Lola waiting however long, seven years, so this, so this guy leaves her with her kid and she's just waiting on him to come back. That's the sort of like melodramatic touch that's just it's just a bridge too far for me where it's like uh, I, I was really really enjoying this but this just takes me out so much and that that's the resolution of the film is that this guy is back and he's rich and they're going to be happy at least that's the implication that I get
1: I'll I'll I'm, say that during, that during that seven year wait she was also getting that sweet sweet blonde <laughs> sailor ass So, I think she was fine. She was just like, you know, if if I'm gonna love again, it has to be this guy. She wasn't exactly waiting around
0: for
2: him. Yeah, but why do you love that guy?
1: Well...
0: <laughs> I, I actually I want to get into I've uh, I almost forgot but I want to get into the portrayal of Americans and the movies films uh, <laughs> and particularly that sailor because I think that's interesting. We're just out but there just... slanging and on the shore, Adam. <laughs> I just there's a very there's a real utterness to how he's captured, and even though he speaks is quite striking and unusual. Yes. But I don't know if I've ever I've ever seen an American uttered like that on the screen okay it's it's in French that seems quite natural but even in other foreign language films when an American shows up it doesn't quite it's it's not as jarring as it is in that case and I don't know I might have to watch more and more to really put my finger on that but I find it really interesting and kind of effective like it works for the story and it works possibly for why she's waiting on someone else and not enamored with this guy or the countless others like him who might be passing through. But just before I get both of your thoughts on that, because I do want them, I think the one thing I, w- I will say to the point you made, Jordan, I-, I think I get that. I I would find that as something that certainly stands out to me in his films. But to me, that comes back to something that I alluded to earlier, because I think it also certainly in a browser, comes up in a major way. Like, Waiting is his movies, you know, if we're talking about core elements of his movies, waiting is, and waiting on someone you love for a crazy amount of time is a part of it.
2: Sometimes not so crazy amounts of time in the case of Cherbourg.
0: That's true. That is true. Um, In that case, maybe moving on a little bit faster. Yeah,
2: so it's actually like an opposite uh, nitpicks for me for these two films. One is, why would you wait that long? And then the next is you couldn't wait any longer
0: but i think both of those things come back to i feel like Demi just views romance generally this idea of love is quite naive and maybe that is best captured in what lola does during the seven years she's waiting like i i honestly think would either of you describe his movies as romantic
2: i think that's the only way to describe them
1: romantic but cynical romantic but cynical is my tagline for his movies
0: i i think you can look at them and start them and think they're romantic but i i i don't find any real romance through those movies by the end i i think to me there is something about the me and his. it's it's interesting because he's clearly a sentimental filmmaker in a lot of ways like something we haven't mentioned is like all of his films take place in these kind of port towns coastal french towns that very much represent Nantes, where he grew up some of them do in fact take place in Nantes, and there is this frequent echoing of his father was a mechanic so like the setup at the start of umbrella sherberg that's really directly calling to you know his own experiences and in Varda's film about um about the me when he was the dying of age he made a film that combined real life footage of him um kind of in the final days of his life with these kind of recreations almost biopic style from his childhood through to later years and how he how he came to love film. It's a really incredible movie. Jaco Denance, it's called I also believe it's still on the Criterion channel. For anyone who's subscribed there, you could check it out. But there is this true line of sentimentality, but when it comes to actual romance, I just maybe i'm reading it wrong i'm i'm not saying there's a there's this kind of a definite one way or the other maybe it is just this kind of overly romantic thing that just sways into melodrama but for me it's he views it in a way that i can't think of many other filmmakers who are as preoccupied with films about love approaching their films
1: i think some of the most romantic moments of his films are between characters that may not necessarily be what we're thinking of as the primary love story when we're going into it and i'll talk about that a little later when we get into shoreberg but it's it's not romantic in the traditional sense and there's some cynicism around what it means to find your one and only true love but i think there are some elements of romance in there it's just a little different than we may be expecting it subverts your expectations a little bit and but there are there are levels to whether or not you could view what I'm going to describe later in the Shorberg section as actually romantic, if that makes sense, but that that'll make a little more sense when I talk about Shorberg.
0: That's fair. I think the other thing worth mentioning here is his movies excel at creating a really romantic feeling and impression overall. I mean, particularly after Lola was we branch into musicals and that's, down to his collaboration with Michel Legrand, like who's one of the most kind of romantic composers. His his scores, his songs are incredibly romantic, and that certainly fuels the overall atmosphere of the Me film. But I don't know if necessarily the Me's subject matter is always neatly slotting into what we'd call a "quote unquote" romance. Even compared to, like, I might, might as well reference something that I talked about last week, which is In the Mood for Love, and we talked about how so much of that film isn't quite just kind of black and white romantic. Again, there is a more sinister undercurrent. But yeah, I, I think its romantic moments are almost more obvious and sweeping than some of Demise. Maybe it's just me, though. Okay, I think that kind of covers over most of the main things that we... We need to talk about in terms of Lola. Um, we'll cross over into what is, I guess, largely considered his most major work, that being the Umbrella Sherpa. I'm guessing this is the movie that both of you had heard the most about before seeing it. Would I be right in saying that? For sure. And I think you're not going to be quite in unison in your response to this one. But your actual impression upon seeing it then. I'll, I'll start because... You know, it's it's
1: interesting that we were both drawn to this movie through La La Land and through Damon Chazelle's love of it, but one of us came out on the other side probably just as in love with this movie as with La La Land, and the other was a little more lukewarm. So I'm the one that loved it. It, it hit all of the notes that I look for in a musical, the the melodrama of the love story that we referenced earlier. Uh, Obviously, I'm someone that really enjoys uh, a musical when it's sung all the way through. I really like Rent. I I really like Les Miserables. It also has that uh, sumptuous filmmaking and that there's longing shots on those, those landscapes, like I said, and on the characters as they fall in love, so on and so forth. So it struck all the same notes that La La Land struck. And that surprised me a little bit because I probably went into... To these three films thinking that i was going to be a little underwhelmed and just just because of that language barrier that that kind of barrier sh- doesn't necessarily exist to me when i'm considering just watching a movie but watching a, mu- a musical where the music and the the sing-song nature of it is such a big aspect of the enjoyment i thought that was going to be a hang-up that i would have uh, about shorberg in, in particular just because it isn't sung the entire way through but that didn't impact me at all. I absolutely loved it.
2: Yeah, I didn't know that it was going to be sung through the entire way. That, I <laughs> learned that as I was watching it, um, which is probably not the best way to go in. I, I wanted to love this movie very badly. I think it looks gorgeous. I think the casting is great. Um, and in fact, <laughs> there's a, a BFI trailer for the, the film. And I'll go back and watch that several times. I think that trailer just sort of stirs the feelings that the film left me with, which I think it's got a great ending, but just getting there and sitting through the things that Andrew liked, like the melodrama, just things being so much bigger than they need to be. And I don't know, I think, I feel like it's difficult to complain about character motivations when something is so big and melodramatic like this
0: do you think that comes down purely to the does that all come back to the song? true the opera-esque nature for you is that because i mean the thing i'm curious of and it's kind of an interesting thought exercise so i wonder do you think it's possible to do that without making it melodramatic i feel like it kind of by its nature it kind of it amps everything up a level when you're particularly with like intentionally there's some really everyday lines in this movie that are sung and performed in in very theatrical kind of way that just it amps everything up so that even when the moments of real drama come it feels like they're turned up even higher do you think it would have been possible to do this sung true and not have that effect or is that probably your major hang up when it boils down to it all
2: that's probably the major thing i wouldn't say the only thing though and i don't know that i've seen any other musicals that are completely sung through um like this
1: on the family vacation this summer jordan i'll make sure to show you some some more uh sung through musicals don't you worry
0: i i haven't seen the i haven't seen the movie particularly the the tom hooper one is, that, this actually applies for two films, I believe, that I could say that about. Cats? Isn't Cats sung true?
2: I only made it through the first hour.
0: I didn't go and see it at all, which that's rare for me. Uh, Lays Rab Isn't Lays Rab also sung true? Andrew, you would know
2: more than I would.
1: I believe that is. Uh, the stage adaptation definitely is. I'm pretty sure they did with the movie as well, but I could be misremembering I think that, that's but... one that's sort
2: of fallen off everyone's radar since it came out, what, 2012? Um, yeah. But to go back to the movie at hand, um, there there's that element, like, every time the postal worker walks in and he just says, hello, goodbye. <laughs> like, that's the sort oh, of thing. Oh, I love
1: that part. I love that so much. Continue. <laughs> uh,
2: so... There's that, but then there's also Mark michels mustache. Just kidding. We'll get to that at some point, though.
0: It's fantastic. <laughs> I'm not having a bad word saying. I say. but- You're going to be outnumbered on this one. I was worried I was going to be outnumbered by the Snyders. It seemed like a natural grouping, but... There seems to be a divide in the family.
2: And it's only when I talk about the things that actually take place and the experience of watching the movie. <laughs> my, my feelings for the movie as a whole, I feel like, are very positive. And every time I watch that trailer, I'm like, oh, my God, that's the movie I watched?
0: So it is the mood of the movie that really speaks to you, is it? Or the overall, just the kind of the emotional journey rather than actually sitting through it? It's the, Yeah, it's definitely the, cumulative the overall effect mood
2: of for, for sure works on me. But then... Um, as I keep alluding to, it's like the moment where she's like, I love this guy, no pun intended, yeah. and I'll wait for you, and I'm pregnant with your kid, and then boom, I'm getting married to this dude I just met. It's like, that's the sort of thing where like, I definitely like and appreciate the idea of naivety and... and love especially she's what she's only 16 or 17 years old
0: right she's 16 that's that's i think the key detail it, it
2: is for sure but is, there's just something about it that i wish um it just feels a little too rushed i think her decision to uh marry this this uh, other guy with a creepy mustache um so like so quickly it turns around so fast at least that's the way it feels as it's portrayed in the movie
1: for me, it works just because... Sorry to shit all over your nitpick. I apologize for that. <laughs> but uh, for me, it it works just because of her age, like you said, and then the, the kind of societal pressure that she's under. I mean... Right. This, the pregnancy is a
0: key element of that, too.
1: The, the pregnancy's huge. The failing nature of their their store and the pressure that's being put on her by her mother. Uh, Ro- Ka- Roland Cassard offers some stability and some, some safety in a world that's a little uncertain. And, you know, Guy is off in Algeria. Who knows what's going to happen? Like if one thing goes wrong, then she's a single mother living with her mother in a failing store. There was a lifeline thrown out to her and, she felt like there was no choice that she had to take it. And you can see the, the sadness and the ambivalence on her face during the wedding scenes, but it was what she felt she had to do for herself and really just her survival.
2: All of that is great and there are fantastic reasons. I just feel like I didn't get that in the film.
1: And you know what? I That's a fair criticism.
0: We'll hash <laughs> this out over Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, I'm cutting the turkey, so... Yeah, I, I mean, not this. This is interesting. This is why we're gonna. We need to have guests, Andrew, because you and I. I mean, we pick things. I think we have quite similar tastes, and so we tend to agree on it. Like, I can't. I, can, I, have no counter to that because those elements of the movie do work for me. But if they don't work for you, I mean, they don't work for you, and that that is kind of interesting. Like, there, there are other elements to this too. I mean, one thing just you've kind of reminded me, Andrew, in bringing up uh, Rowan Kassar here the extra layers added to him in this film from what we know of Lola and particularly like where Lola finishes for him. And the fact that he's essentially like, again, a kind of a spoiler, not really. It's midway through the film. This plot comes together, but he takes on a job to illegally smuggle diamonds. Yes. Like this is, this is going to be his job so that then when he presents like in a vacuum, this is the the white knight who appears in Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and it's like, oh, look at this guy, and I mean, he he can sell the jewelry, sure, no problem with that, and he must have lots of money. Where really, we know, you know, maybe not quite as uh, fixed to the straight and narrow, and maybe. All things may not be quite as they appear with him.
2: That's actually a very fascinating wrinkle to the story, and I did watch them out of order. So I watched Cherbourg before I watched Lola, and I'm also wondering if if I'd seen them chronologically, if that would have altered my perception of this character and the way he's revealed to us.
0: I I do have one other detail I could reveal if either of you would like me to. It's it's. It's something that comes up in Model Shop. It is not a spoiler. It's much like in Young Girls of Rochefort, where we get a one throwaway line. Are you going to ruin my
1: my interpretation of Roland Cassard in two consecutive uh,
0: paragraphs? No, I don't think so. I, I just, I think to me, I mean, it's, he is who I thought he was, but he may not be who you would leave Umbrella's Sherberg wanting him to be. Do you want me to reveal this detail? Basically, what happens next for
1: him? Go ahead, because it ruins what I was going to say. My interpretation of his situation was after Lola. So go ahead.
0: He goes back to Africa and he's involved in some kind of again some shady diamond sort of things. And it doesn't seem like um, I would say not all that surprising that things work out for him and Genevieve.
2: So where's the um, the sequel for Genevieve? Then I want to see modern day Catherine. uh, the nerve
0: well essentially what happened is um model shop being the last because i mean bay of angels is the film that kind of bridges from lola to cherbourg which we haven't talked about here but that also fits into this particular story Um, i won't because i'd be spoiling two movies i know how that fits in though and that ties into the ending of Lola again in a really specific way actually a much more consequential way than the bizarre detail that I've noted but I, I think the plan was that this was going to continue and perhaps particularly considering how often uh, Demi worked with Catherine Deneuve beyond Sherberg and beyond the Young Girls of Rochford even I mean she did Donkey Skim again with him years later there probably would have been another movie about that character but when Model Shop bombed and it was largely blamed from the Mies part and how it was distributed by columbia i think it was put in like as a kind of b movie on double features in kind of suburban multiplexes is the the kind of at least that's historically how it's viewed how columbia distributed that movie so that kind of killed off that whole thing for him and then he went into something that was much more fantastical and never really did it again but the truth is they're probably he probably in his head had another whole movie mapped out for what her next story was or how she would at least figure in someone else's getting a little sidetracked early on. But I think it is interesting just having talked about Lola to bring up like the kind of true line of Roland Kassar, because we do see him certainly even between those two films on very different journeys. Like he is so suave and charming in this movie. And if you just seen this movie, you'd be like, sure, he seems like a good guy. Why wouldn't she just, you know, rely on him seen as where, you know, having seen how maybe he got to that point, it kind of, it brings some ambiguity and adds some interesting questions.
2: I like it more because of that.
0: I, I agree with that. I agree with that,
1: man. My love of handsome anti-heroes is, is, just really bringing me down here because after, after Lola, I trusted Mr. Cassard. I thought that that was a very formative experience. His situation with Lola almost coughed there. That wasn't a tear up, but, uh, Uh, After that formative experience with Lola, he really poured his ambition into becoming a successful diamond merchant, and he was going to be made right and made true, but now that has all come crashing down, and I I don't quite dislike it. I don't know if I like it either but it does not affect my enjoyment of either film. But it's just been a whirlwind of emotions live here on this podcast.
0: I want to use this part just to talk specifically about the music of Umbrella of Sherberg and any songs in particular or your impressions of the songs. And the reason I'm using this point is Re- Re- the Kasar*. I don't know if either of you are familiar with, if you've listened to the soundtrack or anything to really get a sense of these, probably not yet, although I would be prepared to put money that this is something Andrew will do at some point. Re- the Kasar* is it's a motif that actually comes in in Michelle Legrand's score in Lola and it's brought in again in Umbrella Sherberg and obviously lyrics put to it when he first appears when he's having conversations with the jewelers and it's by far like you know maybe this speaks to what doesn't work for you Jordan because this is maybe the least melodramatic song in the whole movie and it's one of my all
3: time favourite pieces of film music Ooh. J'ai aimé une femme Elle ne m'aimait pas On l'appelait Lola Autrefois Déçu J'ai voulu oublier Alors j'ai quitté la France Je suis allé au bout du La vie me paraissait sans attrait, et puis le hasard m'a mis sur votre route. Dès que j'ai vu, je ne viens, j'ai su que je l'attendais.
0: I don't know what it is. I just love that song. I could listen to that song over and over again. What did either of you think of? Either if there's any kind of small moments or even maybe slightly more obscure songs you could think of, or more generally, if the big, most memorable songs, I mean, the, the main song of the movie is pretty well known and has even been kind of translated to english and frequently been sung by people like tony bennett like there's a famous tony bennett version of it i believe that's just that's what research tells me i don't know for a fact but what did both do you think of the actual songs in this movie for me
1: yeah full disclosure i watched all three of these movies yesterday so <laughs> i haven't i haven't gotten to dive into them specifically you as remember much them as i would have liked you're right. Uh, I'm going to perform a... We're going to have a post-credit scene at the end of this podcast, and I'm going to perform uh, one of the songs in its entirety. But for me, like okay, I haven't been able to separate specific songs out yet. I'm sure someday this week on my lunch day, lunch break or walking around downtown Raleigh, I'll uh, grab myself an umbrella and just twirl around the city listening to one. But that has not happened yet. Yeah, well,
2: that's the thing. I, I couldn't tell you a single song title Um even the the big number like towards the end is that one called i will wait for you
0: it is i mean considering what we talked about before i mean i think a <laughs> bit
2: of a misnomer um yeah. but that's that one was, is the most memorable for me i can't really distinguish where and that's part of this the sung through aspect where it's like it's constantly sure. in song so there's not when I have that delineation, I can be like, oh, this was my favorite song, but oh, but this one was so good too, um, which I think uh, when we ultimately talk about La La Land, one of the the big things going for that is that I think there are no bad songs uh, in that musical. Even the, the John Legend one is a little bland.
0: I'm going to be outnumbered when we get to talk about it. Yep, La I, gotta... I know exactly which one you're talking about, but continue to... <laughs> And we're going to have a really logical place to talk about it, I think, if Andrew knows which one, he'll agree with that. But uh, do continue. That's that's for something we'll get to in a few minutes. Yeah,
2: the big final number um, is, is the only one that really stuck for me, just because it does all sort of blend together in my head.
1: Whereas for for me, the the thing that appeals to me so much about this is the sing-songy nature of every aspect of dialogue. So the, it may be the postman coming in, or it may be negotiating with the jeweler or something like that. So I think as I have time to revisit the movie and perhaps you, you know dive into the soundtrack, more specific songs will, will stand out to me. But just the whole sing-songy nature of the movie itself is is what stood out
0: to me do you find yourself andrew wishing life itself was more sing-songy
1: i really do i think i would enjoy myself uh nine to five a lot more in that case
0: i think i'd absolutely hate that if that was real life but for some reason it <laughs> does work for me in this movie to talk about i think something that one if both of you have already kind of mentioned um the the two leads and the lead performances i think it's it's worth kind of take a moment to reflect on that a little bit more specifically and um, we have Catherine Deneuve as Genevieve and Nino Castelnuovo as Guy this film doesn't work if those people aren't in it and specifically if it's not people as just absurdly beautiful as those two are I mean I, I think Catherine Deneuve in this film in particular I don't know how many people have ever looked like that on screen but there there is certainly something to the way the film draws you in earlier and i think possibly even at the time like this this did have some moderate success with us audiences and it was nominated for oscars at the time um in a way that very much would have been uncommon and i think part of that has to be that like these are these are stars that look like i mean whatever the classical ideals of hollywood stars would have been way back when and there is something really, really striking that when put to like the feast of color, for example, that Demi works with in this movie and some of the visual flourishes, even with how he uses the camera, it's just really distinctively beautiful as a movie. And I, I think the two, those two leads really kind of play into that in an interesting way. What are, what are your thoughts on, I guess, those two performances, but also just those two Actors. I mean, Deneuve obviously went on to become one of the all-time great actresses of European cinema. She worked with nearly every master director there was. Casanova, less so, but pretty interesting in this film. I think the performances are are probably
1: what really sell this movie for me. Beyond all the things that I'm naturally going to love about it, because like you said, if if they don't work, then overall. The movie's not going to work i mean like you said they're just two absolutely beautiful human beings that are convincingly playing young lovers who uh see the future in each other's eyes so to speak and they really make you believe it that being said they also have to do something else which is evolve into sad shells of themselves as the movie progresses and they're kept apart and they strike a balance between those two types of performances Perfectly, in my opinion.
2: I don't really have anything else to add about their performances, other than I just wished that we had gotten to see more of them together. Um, but I, I agree; I thought they were they were good and pleasant to look at.
1: Um, you can't teach chemistry, and they absolutely you can't. It. That's you know, true. I
2: just, I just wish that's... they were able to showcase that a little bit more.
0: Last thing on this movie, then. This I'll put up because we haven't... This is a spoiler. We're going to talk about the ending and we haven't gone through all the plot details because that would be pretty boring here. So if you haven't seen Umbrella Sherborg, this is a spoiler warning. Again, check the notes and you'll have a chance to come back in after it. This is an all-time ending. Like, this is one of the all-time endings and it is... the ending that Damien Chazelle essentially reached for when, when he went to do La La Land. That ending chazelle's ending was devastating to me i I thought it was really really incredible but he just gives it a little bit more in a way that i think is true to the hollywood nature of that film and that is obviously key in terms of setting and also the other inspirations for that movie in this case i mean i just think it's a little bit more crushing but an all-time ending for me. What were what were your impressions, Jordan? You mentioned earlier you did admire or enjoy the ending. Enjoy is probably the wrong word. Well, I do
2: find some sort of weird enjoyment and things that make me feel sad. Um, <coughs> Andrew, do we have that in common?
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure we do.
2: Um, but yeah, so, like, again, this I feel like people could say this and mean it pejoratively, but the ending was my favorite part, and that's not because I was like, oh, I'm glad it's over. It's like you said, it's it's probably an all-time great ending, which I think says something for the film if I have somewhat sour opinions on the middle developments that it's still able to (laughs) impact me so uh, emotionally uh, at the end. So it's got that going for it.
0: Uh, I'm not going to... I adore this film. I think it's a masterpiece. I'm not going to say the middle act of this film is super tight and all essential I, I would i would agree with that kind of element that you may be having difficulties with and i think when you see the film in it's in its whole and just how kind of strong the ending is and how much he hammers the ending home i think like clearly this is what he made the movie for like this was the the really kind of grand statement and the the most profound moment of the movie and I feel like there probably was some working back from this and trying to figure out, okay, what what do I do to set this up? Because this is really the the statement I want to make about, you know, young love and this particular couple's relationship, which is just incredibly thought-provoking and kind of handled in a way that you rarely see any relationship handled on screen. But there is probably an element of manufacturing back towards it which I don't ultimately mind because of how successfully he is in pulling it off.
1: For me, there's almost a... I wanted to compare this to the ending in La La Land, as we mentioned. In La La Land, it ends, and our two protagonists are happy with where they've wound up personally in their lives, but there's also that twinge of sadness. But overall, I think it's been a success for both of them, where I got a different read from this ending, but it's still just as, as gut-punching. Obviously, Guy has come back from the war and picked up the pieces of his life with, with Madeline, who was the, the caretaker for his aunt and godmother. And there's a romanticness there in that she kind of helped him pick up the pieces of his life when he didn't know how to exist in the world he came back into. And the life he's made with her is is clearly one that's not everything he imagined. It's not the the life that he dreamed up. When he was singing through the the streets with name I can't pronounce, someone someone hit it for me. Jean Jean There we go. Yeah, it's just it's the southern thing. It's too much southern. <laughs> I mean. uh, it. There's
0: just as much southern in your brother. I like the play.
1: <laughs> That's fair. Jean-Vivre. But it Jean It's not the life he dreamed up with her, but it's a happy life. He's opened up his gas station. He's got his young son named Francois. He's he's got something whereas when she winds up at that gas station there's a deadness and a hurting behind her eyes as she's interacting with the person that she essentially gave up on
0: so in- there's also there's a comment on class there too that's really quite cutting and i think in line with what her mother wants them to be throughout that film and even her perception of gi um and what he does from the very beginning of the film, like when, when she rolls up in that particular car and I believe she's either on her way or coming from Paris. And it's like, she hasn't been back since like it's, it's saying something very cutting about her. I don't have any specific detail to take apart. your kind of happy vision though, of Guy and Madeline's marriage and their life after it. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to work. And the reason I I think you've correctly framed it from Guy's perspective, their relationship is built on and clearly very tumultuously to begin with, on the fact that she knows he's settling for her, and I don't know. I feel like there's some surface level kind of baggage. Like we don't need to dive into the too deep into the plot, but just before kind of he gets his life back on track and he. Kind of, I guess, finally sees Madeline for what she is, is really the way the movie wants us to see it. He does have a dalliance with. We'll call her a cabaret dancer (laughs) or a burlesque dancer, which would be generous. Let's
1: be fair to
0: (laughs) Guy. My only point is, is what is the name of the person he has a dalliance with? um oh yeah okay oh, yeah okay. You right. to pronounce right. it? <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if janvier i'm gonna ask you to pronounce it jenny oh, jenny close it's, we're getting better but, yeah just go with that I, I think that is that is a key scene that is one of the scenes that's kind of there in the middle that is important because it speaks to just how it's kind of following him around and yeah he's moved on in a way but i particularly in demi's world i don't think i don't think that works out maybe not because of him but because of just the baggage that that relationship is kind of having to, again, having to deal with, having to hold.
1: Again, it's this could be my own skewed perception coming in the same way that I was all in on Mr. Cassard. Uh, I think that the best looking woman in this movie is Madeline. And in the next movie, I think it's the brunette waitress uh, from the cafe. So maybe it's just my own personal biases coming in.
2: You should write a piece for The New Yorker all, all about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, copies on the editor's desk, so look for that
0: this week. Okay, let's move on. Young Girls of Um I'll be honest, this is a film that I don't have quite as much to say about. And part of that is I don't know what to say about the story itself. I don't know. I don't know. Is there is there a whole lot essential to say about the story of that movie? I mean, it takes a lot of the key themes from the two films we've talked about it basically expands the world and the cast of characters stretches it out um even literally in duration it's like 30 minutes longer than his his the two previous movies we talked about but also a lot of his movies before and after and i don't know if it does a whole lot even by the end am i alone in thinking that did i do i miss something when i watch this movie which i'm growing to like more and more in each on each rewatch. But by the end, like even those final scenes, there's a lot of kind of treads left loose and not just in a way that's kind of, Oh, that might not be satisfying, but also I feel like isn't quite delivering whatever message he wanted this film to speak to.
1: When I said love, love, really like, really like was young girls of Rochford. I I think it's, it's still an exceptional movie. The, the way he plays with the absolutely eye-popping color throughout the movie is is visually stunning and obviously uh a work of uh, like a, a really great achievement in terms of the way the the song and dance and things of that nature are choreographed but from a narrative perspective i will agree that it's it's a little different the melodrama is played more for laughs in many cases and the best way i would describe the, the plot or the overall theme of this movie is one person walks into a room the person they should meet walks out before they get there and that's just a recurring theme that happens uh throughout the entire movie and i, I don't know if that's along the lines of what you were thinking but i i definitely don't think it's narratively as strong as lola or Shoreberg, uh, shorberg but I found myself having a great time watching it. It's just not something that's oh, sure. nearly as thought-provoking as the other two.
2: Oh, they all, I mean, they all seem to be about the same level of narratively to me. I mean, I don't think this one does anything that the other two didn't already explore. And I just find it sad that they blow the best song right, right at the top of the movie, and then they can't ever uh, recapture from that moment.
0: This being The whatever the
2: twin song is.
3: Nous sommes des soeurs jumelles, née sous le signe des Gémeaux. Mi fa se l'ami ré, ré, mi fa se le sol, sol, rédo. Toutes deux demoiselles, ayant une des sains très tôt. Une face à l'ami ré, ré, mi façon, sol, sol, rédo. Nous fumons toutes de élevées par maman. Qui pour nous surpriv à travailler abaillamant. I mean, it's it's the
0: equivalent of the song in Umbrellas that you picked as your favorite, as in it does reprise multiple times. I mean, it's the film is at least kind of aware that that is the best song of it. I struggle to remember many more from this. This is this is a case where I guess I have. Um, that thing that you have with Sherbourg and maybe maybe the only reason I don't have it with Sherbourg is I've seen that movie probably five or six times now. Where this I think I've seen twice. It's it's incredibly pleasant to watch. I mean it's doing a lot of the same things as Sherbourg visually, except you're swapping out rain for sun and guess what? That makes for kind <laughs> of a more instantly appealing and pleasant watch. Another day of sun. Um oh, I just did that, didn't I? I did. Okay, let's let's go right to that we talk at the ending of Sherberg and just how kind of on the nose that is for La La Land. I assume both of you were struck by the opening scene of this movie. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. But I mean, the thing that struck me the most is that like the music cue leading into the, the twin song is almost, or feels almost exactly Mm -hmm. the same as um, someone in the crowd.
0: I I noticed that too. And I don't think I noticed it the first time I saw it, I'm not sure how that was, or maybe I just forgot about it, but that was incredibly obvious this time. I was like, hmm, Justin Hurwitz.
2: Oh yeah. I was like to the point where I was expecting, it's been so primed in my head when I'm hearing those beats leading up and that little drop uh, right before the music comes in, I've been primed to hear someone in the crowd right there. Um, and so it was actually a little strange to hear it go into that. That's
1: what's so interesting to me. I think I was talking to you about it, Jordan, yesterday about what Damien Chazelle does with La La Land is because obviously that movie takes uh, influences from lots of different films and old Hollywood things, not just right. these two films in particular. But from a narrative point of view and a character point of view, it it draws lots of inspiration from Shoreberg and from Lola in my opinion I know he hasn't said that explicitly we got into that earlier but from a visual standpoint and from a a feel and a musical standpoint it really feels like it draws from Rochford like you said the, the musical cues the way the movie starts with the carnival workers traveling in and setting everything up I mean that's if that had been on an LA freeway then it would have been in La La Land it's just
0: uh, well well there is one thing. I mean it's fifty times superior. And this is this is the part where I probably get in trouble. But fifty it, strong, it but sh- I
1: agree with you, it is superior. It's it, definitely superior. It's not,
0: in a much more dynamic way, the camera is part of the world rather than taking you out of the world. Um it, it is literally it's pulling you into the movie where as Andrew may remember, my experience of La Land, a movie that I love is I watched the first five minutes. and I was like, "Do I do I really want to see this? Should I leave because this is awful? That that moment should not be in that film. I just it's it's terrible. It's a terrible song. This is my take. Neither of you are gonna like it. And I'm just laying out.
2: I actually has I have a pretty interesting story to share about this specific song, and the first time that I saw La La Land, um, which I love. I love that song. I love that montage. But the first time. I saw it, it was a good like 20 to 30 seconds before I was like, is this just like a La La Land themed Coke commercial <laughs> before the movie starts? Um, or has it actually already started? That is something that actually happened. And La La Land is still one of my favorite films of all time. And I now love that opening segment. But that is a real thing that happened.
0: So you're not actually, you, you can see my point on like that. the first time I saw that. I like musicals like I didn't have a problem going into it wasn't a barrier that it was a musical but that particular scene and the way it was choreographed and part of me was probably like hey wait a minute where's Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone you know I just I don't think that scene really works you could literally just go and start from as the camera kind of rolls to his car which is right where it goes from there right as it kind of the, the musical motif changes and it picks up there. And I think you could start the movie from there. And not only does it work just as well, I think it's better.
1: See, he, here's here's why it works for me. And this is just me completely making it up what it means to me. To me, it feels like almost a tribute to a, a type of stage musical in that we're getting the overture. We're getting the song about what we're about to see about the people that are going out to los angeles to struggle to achieve their dream and he's also he also wants to have a big stylistic flourish so he starts the movie by punching you in the face with that and i can 100 percent agree that it might not work for everyone it worked for me it didn't quite work for jordan the first time obviously because he thought it was uh, someone seeing if he can run out to the lobby and refill his coke for two dollars and fifty cents before the movie starts, and it definitely didn't work for you, Adam. But I loved it. I stand by it. But I mean,
0: this is you know, this is a friendly podcast. We're allowed to disagree.
1: <laughs> I understand. I'm gonna,
0: I'm gonna allow oh, you to have that because I know how deeply you love that movie. But do you not think that makes no sense now? Co- I'll, I'll tell you my
1: my reading okay. of it. Yeah, let's Double
2: Okay. So, um, yeah, so, and I think that initial reading of it being like, this is kind of like a sappy Coke commercial, still plays true, because it is super bubbly and colorful, and everyone's got that uh, that smile plastered to their face. But these are all people who are sitting in traffic right now, and probably all of them had the thoughts that this song is evoking that inspired them to come out to LA in the first place and so I think that super happy super over the top number which has some extremely cheesy and I think intentionally so elements in it like with when they open up the back of the truck and they got the mm-hmm. band and they're playing the drums and the the guy who jumps in and starts crumping and everyone's like yeah this is awesome look how multicultural and, and multi-age we are and we're still having fun and then having that juxtaposed with how the song ends and they're all just sitting in standstill traffic, cars honking. And you see the reality of La La Land of, of pursuing that dream.
0: Also, I don't like it because sorry, Andrew, let me just put this one in and you can counter it. I don't like it because it's a break with realism right from the off for a musical that by musical standards is largely kind of tied to realism. And this matters to me because the most important moments of La La Land later in the movie are, again, breaks from realism. And I think it's much more effective to keep it as a more grounded story that happens to have song, so that then when we get to... Is it Griffith Observatory? Is that the name of it? hmm Like, that, that moment, the literal kind of takeoff of that moment, has an extra layer of magic to it, because between that point and there, aside from the camera trick in the pool for someone in the crowd, I can't think of something that, like, completely breaks with, you know, traditions of realism outside of song, which is something you're kind of coming to accept going into the movie. Like, the, the thing is, and it is quite literally, that is a sequence that belongs in a Jack to me movie, because chazelle literally took the sequence from a jack to me movie and personally i would say he he maybe had the misfortune of having the worst songwriting of the entire movie come to that point i I just think lyrically i think musically it's not all that interesting i think from a performance perspective maybe the fact that it is kind of the bike committee choir effect you know you've got this chorus effect it doesn't it doesn't do anything for me it doesn't stand out in the way that we really get to kind of feel the emotion of songs later on when it is Ryan Gosling or Emma Stone leading it off. Just just my take on, but I do think it is it's completely devoid from the movie he makes. And the parts of the movie it knits to are the most like emotionally impactful moments in terms of style and it couldn't be further from that in terms of what its intent is. So it, it just doesn't work for me. But I, I, when we're watching this movie and we're talking about this movie, I mean, we can't but talk about it because it is, it's like for like, I just, I find it much more seamless in this case because sure, we then get sung through, you know, young girls of for, her and it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't have a jarring effect compared to, I guess the opening ten minutes of Laland La outside of that particular song. Andrew, what was your your other comment on it?
1: My comment was that some of these people heading out to LA, the best they could ever hope for would to be in a Coke commercial. So <laughs> I, I just had to
0: unleash that. I, I'm glad I, I put that I, particular w- joke on hold for that long. Yeah,
1: I'm glad I remembered it. I would never tell you you're wrong. I just don't completely agree, and that's what's great about this podcast, Adam. I would never call you fake news like the person that's in Jordan City tonight, <laughs> but I digress. Uh, one of my other favorite aspects of the Young Girls of Rochford, as I said, I binge-watched these uh, yesterday on the Criterion channel on my laptop, as I'm sure... Is this
0: related... Is this related to the message I got midway through your band? It is. Pitch? Jordan
1: also got this message. This is exactly how Jacques Demy intended his movies to be viewed. I'm sure. But I-, I knew nothing about this going in, in terms of the cast or this is the one I knew least about. I think I would say going in. And when Gene Kelly popped up as the da- dashing American composer, Andy Miller, uh, I was just overjoyed as, as a fan of uh singing in the rain i i've also seen an american in paris but it's been so long that it would be unfair for me to say that that's something that is really important to me because i think it deserves a revisiting in my uh adult age but seeing gene kelly pop gene, up gene the... kelly pod
0: coming up andrew that's all i've got to say oh that, that's we've got it to... that one's gonna be glorious
2: Huge, huge blind spot for for me over here.
0: Maybe we'll get you on again and sometime down the line. And we'll do a Gene Kelly pod because I think that one could be a lot of fun. Um, it's not just Gene Kelly. I mean, this is this is probably the element to round out our Young Girls of Rochefort experience and kind of to bring us to our towards our conclusion on to me overall. Like this is where he's obviously reached a point in his career by the helped by the success of Umbrellas of Cherbourg and by the Oscar nominations, undoubtedly. Also, I would say just by the general kind of recognition that it seems like he got within the song and dance community, because not only do you have Gene Kelly, you have George Chakiris, who was in West Side Story. And the first time I saw this movie, I was like, wow, it's so uncanny how much that guy looks like, the guy from West Side Story, and kind of dresses like someone from West Side Story. This is really effective. Only to look it up and be like, okay, well, he actually got him. Um, but even someone like Grover Dale who reading up on kind of a a significant choreographer who plays Bill in Young Girls of Rochford so there is this kind of smattering of key kind of not entirely Hollywood I mean Grover Dale more Broadway but American song and dance this reminds me something we didn't get to touch on so maybe this is the point where we can just not just um, Demi and Hollywood but Demi's impression of America we didn't we didn't get back to the American in Lola. So what is your overall impression of his fascination? I mean, I grew up on Hollywood movies too, but I did also grow up on them with them being from America, being from somewhere different and knowing that what's it like to see so many of those kind of, I guess, key cultural touchstones, albeit these are from long before any of our lifetimes, where these were the kind of dominant cultural elements but kind of packaged into this French movie and having that moment that you had, Andrew, being like, Gene Kelly? Like, Gene Kelly's in this movie and he's he's dubbed into French? Like, what is going on? It's kind of... It must be an interesting thing and just a strange effect the way Demi uses America and Americans in his movies. It seems like he thinks we're a little stupid. That, w- that was just the, <laughs> the
1: vibe that I got. I mean, Gene Kelly's character here is kind of wide-eyed and uh, bushy-tailed and just kind of popping about the city not being able to find the music store that his
0: old classmate owns.
2: Stupid American question real quick. Was he dubbed? That wasn't him just singing French? No,
0: everyone is pretty much dubbed for what it's worth. We probably should have said that, but there is no one in any of these movies performing their own songs.
2: Wow. Wow. <laughs> so even like on in the recording like recordings are there
0: are voice performances for almost everyone now kelly was entirely dubbed i believe um i'm open to correction on that but to my knowledge he was entirely dubbed
2: well that that is actually surprising news to me but
0: the the Um, dubbing it's worth saying i mean because there's a lot of like a lot of italian movies at this time yeah a lot of italian movies this time notably just didn't care for any kind of synchronicity you know and they'd just be like sure just say it in your own language and we'll dub it you know the spaghetti western effect but even something that someone like Antonioni used where no in this case clearly I mean at least phonetically these American actors had to learn what they were saying and work through that but I mean again because it's sung true, a lot of it let's say yeah like George Akiras, um, who starred in West Side Story you know and, and starred on stage um in lots of lots of things too he's dubbed by a french singer called rumald gene kelly andy miller is dubbed by donald burke which sounds like another american so it seems like gene kelly was actually dubbed into french by another american but yeah that's probably something i should have highlighted at some point but we're getting to now at least does that change even your perception of what Americans are in these movies?
2: I don't think it changes anything for me. But the guy in Lola, because that was such... I don't know if it was weird performance, weird delivery, weird direction. But there are moments when he speaks in English and the English has some kind of accent. The actor's name is Alan Scott. He was born in I'm New Jersey. I'm assuming that's the dub, he hasn't right? Really
0: I don't know. He's speaking in English. I mean, with that voice, I don't I don't know in that case.
2: That, that's the thing. Yeah, so Lola would that be recorded the same way if it's not?
0: I feel like even possibly because of budgetary reasons, there's a good chance that maybe they were just picking from American actors who could speak French.
2: Maybe, but yeah, like his his American delivery is <laughs> accented in a way that i guess it's a french accent but It's french he's an american guy I,
0: I am not a fluent french speaker by any means i did study french in school and have retained some of that but i do have, maybe have a wide enough familiarity with what it sounds like his french does not sound like a native francophile he does sound like a non-native speaker speaking french right. so I, I do think he is legitimately american and that's his voice
2: <laughs> I, w- I would love to get um, a little bit of Alan Scott behind the scenes uh, insight into this, but I don't know that he ever did much beyond the, beyond the 70s. He was in a Varda film, so maybe we can check his performance in that and cross-reference.
0: Ah, uh, *Clear from 5 to 7 is Varda's greatest film ever and probably the best starting point for anyone getting into Varda. He, I, It says he's actor in a silent film in that, though, so... <laughs> Um, maybe not getting to showcase his range, but all the same, is
1: he dead? Can we get him on? Or
0: is he dead? I don't know if we'd be able to find out if he was dead, like just at the click of a button. I think that's the yeah, kind. I didn't of,
2: really have an extensive Wikipedia entry. That's
0: the level we're dealing at. If he's alive, he is ninety-eight. I'm not sure how down with technology he's going to be for our, you know, our cross-Atlantic podcast session, but we can we can try, Andrew. Yet another misconnection. Um, <laughs> <laughs> his last movie was in 1977, for what it's worth. The one thing I will say, just on... I can't speak for the portrayal of Americans, but if you can... Um, both of you and anyone listening, if, if Model Shop is available through some form in the States, if it's not yet, it probably will be soon because Arrow remastered and re-released it on, on Blu-ray and DVD here recently. Um, that is Demi's love letter to LA. It's the same time when he and Varda went there on holiday and they just stayed there for a long time. She started making like Black Panthers documentaries and Demi made a really gritty LA movie. That is not a musical. No music in it, and it's really gritty. And it's often referred to as one of the all-time great kind of LA movies. And it is the movie that Tarantino has probably most widely referenced for the look and the feel of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It does something very similar with music on the radio. It involves and um, the cars driving around. I actually think the exact car that's used in Demi's model shop, Tarantino managed to get and include in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. But it's set in '68. I believe so kind of right at the same kind of same kind of juncture, same point in history, really interesting movie um, for anyone who gets that English language, a new game. reprising her role as Lola and uh, what's the guy's name? I'm blanking the, not the lead, but next to the lead in 2001 space odyssey, Gary, lockwood gary lockwood thank you gary lockwood is the lead character in a role that Demi me had uh discovered a young actor by the name of harrison ford and decided that's who he wanted to cast in the movie and the studio said this guy can't act nobody knows who he is and i believe it was six years later then that harrison ford actually got his break in american graffiti so just a little tidbit of jack to me trivia before we wrap up
1: he would go on to, he would go on to to be in one of the best not worst at all star Wars scenes so uh anyway continue
0: that's true the the one thing that i want to finish on is having watched model shop in recent days and i've just spoken about it there and just really thinking about the movies demi made and the style of them maybe there's an element of he just came along at the wrong time and he maybe didn't get the opportunities to go to America and be a success making his type of movies that European filmmakers did, say, a generation before him. But I do think that he could have had a, a big American career if he had gone and he had made his style of musicals anglicized. Maybe they're not quite sung true, but taking his kind of thematic preoccupations and his... Uh, key kind of recurring interests visually like considering the success of so many of the films just around the era and really just before it like i wonder could the musical have survived as a really kind of predominant movie form for a little bit longer if someone like Demi had to come along injected something different into it but while paying homage to something like West Side Story, as as one of the later entries before musicals became something different and tailed off. Do either of you have any thoughts on that? I mean, and I guess part of this goes back to the accessibility we saw with Lola, um, which obviously doesn't have the music elements, but I, I do feel like all, all around, all tied together, there is something with the Mies movies that, to me, it feels like could have crossed over more easily.
1: I'll agree with that. Uh, he's His movies scream old Hollywood musical but with a new twist and some of those darker more cynical themes um could have played well i mean basically if he just could have repeated the formula for for these particular movies with you know american actors uh get people that are pretty to look at in these dramatic and ultimately doomed situations and place great songs around them and innovative great visual filmmaking then I think that's a recipe for success like you said when he got his chance in America it just didn't seem to be the right time or in particular the right situation the people supporting him and around him clearly didn't give him everything he needed for success
2: I would have loved to see him continue even though in this podcast I was the one who had the least amount of effusive praise for him I would have loved to see more work from him in that vein because i am still um looking forward to continuing knocking down some of his filmography um bay of angels which i've I've seen is actually uh that's the only other demi film i've seen that we haven't talked about and that's probably my favorite that i've seen so far um which is quite different than either of these movies and Um, I'm looking forward to watching because I have his Criterion box set so that also Mm -hmm. comes with donkey skin which looks wildly different from any of these films so he's um, seems like he has covered a lot of genres or, or styles but I'm assuming that that love romance thread will probably be spliced throughout most of them
0: yeah throughout the vast majority it, it's there um he just gets he really gets more fantastical after the point we were talking about essentially on chamber is the one film that's really grounded and gritty Um, probably his darkest film overall that comes later it's again sung true all the same but i mean donkey skin is a prime example of where he kind of he drifts into the realm of classic French fairy tales and he makes films that, sure, there may have romance, but they get weird. Like, Donkey Skin is a film without incest, really. Um, and just the, the overall staging of his films, it just gets more and more kind of, I guess, flamboyant, you know, just louder. And considering how, like, these are not by any means quiet films visually, I think that that speaks to something. But I I just, I, I'm curious in the kind of hypothetical world in reality. Look, I don't think it would have worked for him having to work within the studio system. And I don't think they would have certainly accepted some of the traits of his work. Certainly his melancholy endings would probably not have gone well, but if there could have been a balance achieved, I think that would come to a place where it might address some of the issues even that you had in watching his films And could also add some completely new flavors and come up with something that was entirely different. I think he's maybe the only director who's so musically inclined at that time that I can think of where it's like, if he had got a chance to do a certain kind of film at that time, maybe the landscape of movies for really the next 40 plus years. I mean, this is why La La Land was such a kind of, sure, there were musicals, but there weren't musicals of this style there weren't musicals on this kind of grand scale maybe that would have been different if someone like the me had, had a chance in hollywood but look i think we've we've covered a lot of ground the me we've gone pretty deep hopefully for anyone listening if you haven't watched his movies and um, we've given you enough of a taster to go and seek them out I, I think we're all in agreement like really watchable um in spite of some of the the probably perceived barriers of language of the the musicality of them, there is something about them that is kind of really easy to tune in and out. And they're generally pretty snappy too. I mean, um, Lola and Umbrella Sherberg around 90 to 95 minutes and in around two hours for Young Girls of Rochefort. So not exactly overstaying their welcome. Any final thoughts, Jordan, any final thoughts on Demi?
2: Just to uh, put my, La La Land thoughts and a nice little bow. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend anyone check out Demi's films. Um, I have a greater appreciation for them now that I've seen them. Um, it's just my personal opinion that Damien Chazelle took all the the good things, or not the good things, the things that I connected with most to those films, uh, incorporated, into, incorporated them into La La Land, and then... Didn't include any of the things that <laughs> turned me off so much from that movie. It's where the the love story between Sebastian and Mia is a little bit more believable. It feels more grounded to me. And it could just be because of the times. And I think progresses much more naturally. Um, so, yeah, that's that's it overall. A huge La, La Land guy over here. But also turned into a big Demi guy.
1: I'll uh, I'll echo those sentiments about making sure that you you catch up on Demi's films. Uh, I I did them all one after the other, so maybe give yourself s- some space and time to to think about them and really consider what you're watching. But you know that being said, Adam, we know that Demi's career is a bit of a uh, a bit of a n- not mystery, but a big what could have been based on the conversation we we just had. But Adam, would he have wanted it any other way? Because he better than anyone knows that we are all victims of circumstance and subject to
0: the whims of fate. Wow, well, that was very, very profound, Andrew. And sure, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's it's a nice way of summing up Demi's film. It's a nice way of kind of wrapping up our conversation. I want to give Jordan the last word as such here. And I have one question for you, Jordan. Outside of Jack me film's is there anything you've seen recently? Anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners that they may not have checked out? Anything you feel particularly passionate about in terms of movies right now?
2: I feel like uh, you just set me up to spike this ball as hard as possible <laughs> because... Portrait of a Lady on fire. Yes. Um, I don't know about the world ri- our worldwide release schedule for that, but it just recently had its wide release Um, starting on Valentine's Day in the United States and just recently expanded to my city in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, So I've now seen it four times, um, and I don't plan on slowing down. So, yeah, if anyone uh, has a theater near you playing Portrait of a Lady on Fire, please go see it. It needs all the support in the world.
0: I saw it for a third time today. Um, It is currently available in... A theater near you in ireland in the uk as well so it is i think outside of france it's i think most places in the world seem to be getting it now On um, i loved it the first time i loved it even more the second time on my third watch i'm like this is a perfect film there's there's literally not a second or frame of this movie that i think could be changed should be changed it is mind-blowing just a masterpiece you probably heard me talk about it on our Best Of episode, those of you who've listened to that one. Andrew is going to, when Jordan drags him, which is going to happen, it yeah, seems
2: Andrew, like... Yeah, see, Andrew, have you seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, <laughs>
0: Stop <Andrew>? it. Unfair. <laughs> It'll happen at some point. We'll talk about it in more detail, because I think Jordan is going to have to make sure Andrew gets to see it. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a good place to end on. Any other notes? Do you want to tell people where they can find you, find your other movie thoughts, or any other plugs you might have, Jordan?
2: Uh, if you feel like it, you can follow me on Twitter at JordySny, J-O-R-D-Y-S-N-Y. That's pretty much the only place I'm talking about movies. Or uh, Letterboxd, if you have that. I'm on Letterboxd, same username, Sny.
0: All right. Thanks so much for coming on. You're our first guest. We're honored to have you. It was a lot of fun.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, next week we are going to have our second guest. We're keeping the guest train rolling for a second week in a row. Um, for those of you listening, for those of you who want to be prepared and get a little bit ahead of things, I'm not as much going to give you a set list of films this week. I can probably put out a couple in particular, but the focus of next week's episode is going to be another crash course of sorts, but we're going to lock in on the movies of one Jake Gyllenhaal. And I'm very excited for this. I would say if you're looking to kind of, If you're looking to get a head start and do some re-watching ahead of it, (laughs) I think it's safe to say lean into the more kind of dark and perverse and completely demented Jake Gyllenhaal performances, because I feel like some of them are going to come up. But we'll have a longer conversation about his choices, his movies, and I guess who Jake Gyllenhaal is as a movie star. So that's come next week. Until then, make sure you subscribe to us on whatever your podcast platform of choice is. You can find us basically across all of them. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and you can also visit our website, CaptionSatellite.com. Until the next time, thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. And thank you, George.
2: Thank you. Bye.